Welcome into another edition of the Duck Territory podcast. I'm Matt Frame. Eric Scopel is across the way. How are, you, how are you doing here today, Matt? It's the first time you've been, I think it's the first time I've seen you in like, <laughs> like six weeks. Yeah, it feels like a lot. Uh, I've been gone for a while. We haven't done a podcast for a couple weeks just because uh, I was At in hotels. hotels. I was in San Jose. I was in Vegas, and we I think we did one just before the tournament. We did, yeah. And, and then I went to San Jose, and then I got home for all of 19 hours, and then was back on a plane to Louisville uh, to cover Oregon First Virginia. You, meanwhile, were in Portland for parts of the week. Uh, you were in Eugene, excuse me, yeah. covering the women's first and second round, and then they went to Portland and they played in the regional Portland regional. It's weird they don't call in women's basketball the the West region, right? But they stay based on the city, yes, yeah. Chicago, Albany, Portland, right? But they, the Ducks went to the Portland regional and played in the Moda Center and won two really exciting games and have now advanced to the Final Four. Uh, so we've been in different parts of the country, different focuses. You've been on, zeroed in on women's basketball uh, with some spring football sprinkled in along with men's. And then I've been men's basketball with some women's basketball sprinkled in. And I I was joking. I went to, we also have to talk about spring football because... Yeah, we, you jumped in. You're like, we're going to do men's and then we'll do women's. And I was like, what about spring football, <laughs> which everybody wants to talk about anyway? And it was Too funny. There's spring football. on. We're, we're recording this on Wednesday, April 3rd. And there was spring practice April 2nd at, at the Mitrovsky Center. You were at women's basketball as they prepared to leave for Tampa. Uh, so I went to the football practice, and I was joking with a couple of Oregon's sports information people that uh, – or I guess I should say communication staff because that's their official oh, title. Oh, they changed now. titles, huh? Uh, is that football seems just so foreign to me because I, I literally – you know, I, I I read some of the stuff that we put up on the site throughout the last month, but right. you know, I've been so focused on writing and covering basketball, and then if if I'm not doing that, I'm watching March Madness or I'm watching conference tournaments or I'm watching the women in the NCAA tournament. That uh, football just seems so foreign. It's like, oh yeah, football. It, it's going on. This is happening. It is going on, man. It's it's. Uh, I guess you've been stuck in too many gyms watching great basketball <laughs> games. We should mention that was was uh, at the Purdue Tennessee was it an Elite Eight game that was just absolutely bonkers, amazing. Yeah, one of the best games I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and it's it, it, and that doesn't do it justice. Uh, I, I've been fortunate enough to to be in in person for a lot of really good games. Uh, that one will be tough to top. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Just ridiculous shots being taken, and then ridi- those shots going in made it even just more ridiculous. Maybe that's a good transition to the Oregon women's basketball team. Or are we going to talk about football? That's football first. first. Okay. Spring football is here. Uh, we were. I was at when, uh, Tuesday's practice, and uh, Mario Cristobal talked a lot about how now that the team is back from their two week break, they had a week off from fall for winter finals, and then spring break. And then they, they returned to, to campus on Monday, April 1st. They had some kind of a workout, uh, like weightlifting session type deal. Uh, and then they were on the practice field on, on Tuesday and they welcomed in four new, uh, early enrollees. Uh, Patrick Herbert, brother of Justin Herbert. Uh, Michael Wright was not at practice when we were there, but he was landing in Eugene literally as practice had started. Uh, so he will be there for his Thursday practice for the full practice and then uh, Camden Lewis, a kicker from North Carolina, he enrolled, uh, and then the four-star receiver Micah Pittman from Calabasas High School uh, in California, he was also at practice. And then uh, in street clothes, sitting on the sidelines watching practice go out, and uh, 
uh, was Jawan Johnson, the Penn State graduate transfer wide receiver, a guy that, quite honestly, you and I were a bit surprised that he's now enrolling and eligible to practice on Thursday. When I spoke with him shortly after he committed, I think that was back in January or maybe early February, it was with the understanding that he was going to have classes and responsibilities at Penn State to wrap up and he'd be enrolling in the summer. So obviously here a little early, I think great news. And and one of the things I asked Crystal, I think one of the things that we'll talk about and kind of will be a focal point this spring is, Oregon had such issues at wide receiver. They now have three very highly regarded new receivers on campus um, for the second portion of spring. Of course, Josh Delgado's been here for the entirety of spring. You mentioned Pittman and Johnson are both here. Three guys to really possibly push some of these returning players. Obviously, Dylan Mitchell's gone. Dylan Red is probably the most reliable returning guy. And it really does feel like a position group where there, there are three jobs that are open and available, and they bring in these three highly touted guys to possibly push them. And yeah. first of all, we even said yesterday that this had kind of provided a nice little bit of urgency for some of these veteran guys to go, hey, there's some pretty good players now that are on campus. We're going to have to, then they're going to push for playing time, so we got to be ready to compete. So competition, I think, at that position, at those positions, that wide receiver is going to be really interesting to track this spring. In terms of what they did on Tuesday's practice, what we were able to see, uh, Chris Ball said it was, you know, from a physical standpoint, practice number six. Uh, from a mental standpoint, it was kind of like practice number one. Uh, they didn't install anything new. They didn't throw any new wrinkles at the team. Um, they expected, you know, the, the competition to be there. They expected the tenacity and the effort and the juice to be, you know, ramped up as if it wasn't the first day of practice and that these guys were, you know, they were pushed. And Mark Christopher said specifically along the offense and defensive lines that the staff challenged those two units uh, to, to have a really good practice and, um, by all accounts, from what Mario Cristobal said, was that's what happened uh, during Tuesday's practice. Thursday, we'll be back probably in some kind of a pad, uh, you know, light light padded practice. Yeah. Uh, helmets, shoulder pads, probably shorts again. Um, and then on Saturday, Oregon has an open spring practice scrimmage. Uh, it's up in Portland at Hillsboro Stadium. Practice starts at 12. Gates, I believe, open at 10:30. It's free to attend, although you are encouraged to bring some kind of a, of a food donation uh, to donate to get in. Uh, plenty of parking, and if, if it's raining, it doesn't really matter because we were told at practice that Hillsborough Stadium has roughly 3,700 seats that fit underneath wow. a, a covered seating area. So you can go and get a seat, and it be it could be raining, it could be sprinkling, and you'll stay dry. And we should mention that the, that you said there's a scrimmage. Cristobal did say yesterday that there'll be at least 50% of the practice, or about 50% will be 11 right. on 11. So the, you, this will be probably one of two opportunities for fans this this spring to watch this team scrimmage 11 on 11, full go, because um, obviously there's a spring on, on April 20th. But I think really an, an awesome opportunity, whether you live in Eugene or Portland, to, to drive up. Obviously, we'll be up there along with Kevin and a couple of our, our interns covering it, so check out our coverage. But I think that's going to be a, the first opportunity to really get a glimpse kind of of what this team looks like, but also I think something that we'll be keeping a close eye on, what these newcomers look like, because there's now going to be 10, I guess if you include Jawan Johnson, 11 new players on this team already, and we frankly haven't gotten a chance to see them do a whole lot. I mean, the practices that have been open have been fairly limited in terms of what we've been able to see. We've seen them do some drills, run around a little bit, you get a sense of kind of the athletic stuff, but to actually see them in some full football, I think that's going to be a big opportunity on Saturday. Yeah, and Cristobal also noted that, you know, they want to scrimmage for about half the practice, but he also said that there's going to be a lot of value in uh, the guys doing seven-on-seven, two-on-three, you know, one-on-one, you know, your regular type of stuff 
uh, offense versus defense matched up, and then also just offense and defense run. So you're going to get it. If you're going to, to Hillsborough and you're going to watch this team practice, you're going to get a feel for how Oregon operates, you know, the fundamentals that this team stresses uh, in practice that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, on on practice the website, yeah. uh, in practice reports, and DuckTerritory.com. So you'll get you'll get a feel for how this group really hammers home the fundamentals, but then also it sounds like they're going to ratchet things up a little bit. Uh, Cristobal did say, though, that, you know, it didn't necessarily was asked about the scrimmage, but just overall spring ball. Um, they aren't really going to probably go full live. Uh, guys, you know, being asked to be taken down to the ground. And, right. you know, it, it's it's a move in spring ball where I just don't think it makes a lot of sense uh, because – you don't want to get guys hurt. Obviously, you want to practice form tackling and whatnot and, you know, the ability to get hit. But uh, it, there's just no value in a guy teeing off on another guy in spring ball because he could potentially be lost for the season. And, right. and look, no better than look at TCU. You know, this week they announced that they're not doing a spring game just because they simply don't have the numbers because of injuries and, and departures and, and graduations and all that. And, and I think – uh, Gary Patterson, the TCU head coach, said half their team is expected to arrive in June when when summer school starts. So they literally don't have enough guys. And, and Cristobal noted that as well that you know, they don't have the, the the bodies to to withstand attrition that comes with full takedown live football. Right, and we should mention just on the injury front, it sounds like Cal, we have and we have an update. Mr. Alec put it together for us, but Calvin Brockmorton won't take full part in practice this spring. But he's a guy obviously dealing with a broken leg. But it sounds like he's proving quick enough that he's going to be doing some stuff, which I think is notable, obviously, an important piece. And I think, for the most part, this is a pretty healthy team right now. Yeah. It was not the case when things started. sounds like the break kind of provided some buffer zone for some guys to kind of get some rehab and kind of get healthy. So uh, probably a lot to get to in terms of the football stuff, in terms of kind of breaking down what looks like things from position. But we, we're so focused on basketball these last <laughs> weeks that it, a lot of it is sort of escaping me, but we'll obviously be out there on Thursday and Saturday, and then for the next couple of weeks leading up to the spring game on the 20th, stay on that territory for that. Yeah, we'll have plenty of coverage uh, throughout spring. It's crazy as it sounds, spring game, Eric, is 17 days away. I just turned 30 like two days ago, so <laughs> it, it feels like everything's moving too quickly, uh, but that's that's absolutely insane. Yeah, that is, we're already seven, in April. Seven, we, 17 days away from spring football, and... We should note that the, the 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 situation for for recruiting from a spring game perspective yeah. is starting to look very very impressive uh, for that spring game. Um, we've already got uh, I believe four or five guys confirmed for the spring game, uh, and a couple four star guys, a couple three star guys. Uh, there's going to be a lot of 2021 recruits, and uh, so if if you're following Oregon football recruiting. Yeah, the Ducks haven't landed a commitment in a while, but it's starting to shape up like there could be some stuff that comes down the pike here uh, in the next couple of weeks to a couple of months where we could see a couple commitments play out. Most notably, one to watch, DJ Ugole, uh out of St. John's Bosco High School. He's going to Clemson earlier, later this month, and then he's going to come to Eugene sometime in April. Uh, and then from there, the five-star top five player in the country is going to make a decision probably in the next couple of weeks. So that's going to be the big one to, to watch early on. That's an absolutely huge one to watch early on yeah. because with Justin Herbert leaving, DJ Ugalele would come in and if he did pick Oregon, have a, a pretty open opportunity. He'd have to obviously beat out Tyler Shuck and Cale Millen, but he'd have a chance to be Oregon's starting quarterback in a year, which is crazy to think about. Uh, let's move on to now the women's basketball team. 
this group all year long talked a lot about how they wanted to make the Final Four. They wanted to crack through two straight times. They made the Elite Eight. Uh, two years ago, it was as a 10 seed, which was kind of the out-of-nowhere yeah. you know, run. Uh, people weren't expecting it. I don't think anyone was really even expecting an NCAA tournament. They had a losing uh, record in the yeah, conference. Go, yeah, going into the season. Uh, and then they, they got their – I think they – they upset Washington or something of that nature, I think, and in the conference tournament, and that kind of punched their ticket as one of the last teams in, and then they just went on a tear, kind of similar to what the men did this season. Last year, it was expected. Gate gets the Elite Eight. That was their you know expectation, and then a lot of people thought Final Four was possible. They looked like they were going to do it against Notre Dame and uh, the Spokane Regional, and they just couldn't do it, and Notre Dame went on to win the national championship. Uh, and now uh, the Ducks went in as a two seed in the Portland Regional. They kind of throttled Saint North uh, North Dakota State uh, in, in the semifinals. South Dakota, South Dakota State, excuse me, in the in the semi in the Sweet 16, and then uh, an Elite Eight game against one seed Mississippi State, which will go down probably as one of the greatest Oregon women's games in recent. I mean, it's probably, right now, is maybe the best win in, you could say, maybe in program history, because yeah. it is the one that's gotten them to the Final Four, and it, and it wasn't just the fact that it got them there, it was because it was an excellent game. Yeah. It was really back and forth, the fact that it was in Portland in front of tens of, almost said tens of thousands, but over 10,000 fans. Uh, what an awesome opportunity for Oregon to do it, not only to make a run at this, but to do it in front of a lot of Oregon fans. And again, it was a really, really great game. And it uh, came down to the wire, as most of these big-time showdowns do. And obviously, Oregon had beaten uh, Mississippi State previously in the season. And this game kind of played similarly. It was tied going into the fourth quarter. And Sabrina Nescu hit some big shots. Mike Tekazorla hit a big three. I thought uh, Satu Sabali had some big moments. Ruthie Hebert had some moments defending Tierra McCallan, who's, by the way, I mean, that is an absolute force down there. She reminds me of of Brittany Griner, who obviously, if you follow, uh, you know, women's basketball at all, you're familiar with the name. She, she's just so much larger than anyone Oregon could put on her. And she had 19 and 15 on them, and it felt like in the first half she was going to go for like 35 and 20 because she was just absolutely dominating things on the interior. But Oregon did a better job in the second half on her and, and was able to hold on. Yeah, UNESCO with 31 points, 7 rebounds, 8 assists. Sabli with 22 and 7. Hebert with 14 and 5. She did have two blocks, one of which came on the count late. That was, I think, a pretty critical play. Cazorla with 11, Aaron Boley with 8, and Adi Gilden with 2 points. So I got contributions from a lot of players, but it was I think this kind of comes down to this was a, a, a signature Sabrina Ionescu game and a signature Sabrina Ionescu play about a minute 20. I was just going to say, she kind of gave the Jordan shrug. She did. She had a little Jordan shrug, and then afterwards she had a great quote. I'm going to have to go try to find this really quick. But uh, asked about uh, the significance of the shot, and she said something did the effect of, I just wanted to walk off to the Final Four. Let me see if I can, <laughs> let me see if I can get the entirety of that quote from Sabrina here. I'll, and I'll say this about this entire team is, and Kelly Gray's kind of talked about it uh, after the win, I think it is when it happened, or maybe it was before the, the Elite Eight game. Um, there has been a ton of attention mm-hmm. on this women's team throughout the year. Obviously, UConn is the gold standard for women's basketball, and they are always talked about. They are always discussed on national TV shows and women's basketball discussion. Uh, You could make a case that after UConn, Oregon has been the most discussed team in some capacity, whether that's 
Sabrina Inescu or the, the overall team perspective, uh, you know, they are media darlings, I, I'd say. You know, the media has fallen in love with Oregon women's basketball, and they get a ton of attention. And yet, you know, going into the Final Four for a program like Oregon, they've never been before. I think a lot of years you probably think, okay, this team's probably going to have a little bit of nerves going in. This team is probably going to be a little shell-shocked because they've never been at this stage before. Right. Uh, I think the journey from, from last season's loss to now the Final Four has prepared this team so much, and they've had so much media attention on them already, that when they get there, yeah, it'll be an adjustment, but I don't think it's going to be as big of a phase as it, as it potentially could have been just because of how much attention they've received throughout the year. Two quotes, because I was looking here while Matt was talking. First was the quote that UNESCO had, I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen this. She says, well, that was going in regardless, referencing the shot she made with about a minute and 15 to go to put them up six. I was like, let me just hit this and walk off to the final four. That's just an awesome quote, and honestly, one of those great Oregon quotes. Um, but uh, along the same lines of what you said there, I think you made a really a good point there, and Graves kind of referenced this yesterday, just about how much attention this team has had, and, and you know, again, he is the only coach playing in this that hasn't won at least two national championships between UConn's Gino Ariema, Notre Dame's Muffin McGraw, and Baylor's Kim Mulkey. They have 15 national championships, and 11 of those are from Ariema because they're basically winning a title every season. But uh, Graves said, similar to what you were saying, it's a new experience for us, but this has been a team under the microscope, and, uh, and they've had a lot of pressure and a lot of eyes on them all season. It might be a different stage, but I think they'll be used to it. So I, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, this, this feels like a thing where – Again, Oregon's never been to the Final Four. They're kind of this Cinderella. Are they going to be able to handle it? That's not really what the season's been like. They've been on a lot no. of big stages. They've beaten a lot of these big, you know, some of the, of the teams that were in the Elite Eight, Oregon had beaten two of them already this season. So it's not like they haven't played teams of this caliber. It's not like they haven't beaten teams of this caliber. And again, they've been on the big stage. They've been a central focus all season. And they've been in the Elite Eight before. They've played in two of those. This is not going to feel like, I don't think, too much of a difference to this team. And I think you're going to see them go out there and play a really good game. Now, the question is, can they beat Baylor? And I think that's going to be a very challenging matchup. Yeah, Baylor has it, – it, they have a, a huge size advantage. Yes. Um, they will have two post players that are both over six foot five, that are both like – I don't want to say Tara McGowan's, but they can – they have incredible footwork – they are very athletic. They can score the ball. They can rebound the ball. They can block shots. Uh, Oregon's going to have their hands full. And, and that being said, I think this game, you know, from a, my opinion, from afar, is going to is going to come down to Oregon's ability or inability to make the three pointer. Because <laughs> if Oregon is playing like they did against Mississippi State and shooting at an unreal clip from three and Aaron Bully, Satu Sabli, Maite Carzola, and Sabrina Inescu, if those four girls are out there and are hitting down shots, Oregon's going to have the advantage because Baylor won't be able to play with two big big post players like they do all year. And if they do, that opens the door for switches, and Oregon will try like heck to get Satu Sabli matched up against one of those bigs and just have her drive right by her. And I think that this is going to be an absolute conflict of styles. So yep. One of the interesting stats with Baylor is that they've attempted the least number, the lowest number of three-point shots all season. They shoot about eight a game, which is a crazy number in this modern age where yeah. teams are shooting a ton. And Oregon shoots the 10th most per game, and they shoot about 25. So this, it's quite I mean, a bit. teams are playing a little different style. And, 
and, and it'll be really interesting to see kind of how that plays out. I would imagine a team like Baylor, who doesn't rely on a three-point shot, is used to playing from with a lead, used to playing comfortably. If Oregon comes out and maybe hits them with an early gut punch and maybe takes a six- to eight-point lead in that right. first quarter, I wonder how Baylor responds to that. And it was actually one of the things you've been reading some of the national coverage. That sort of is kind of the big question for Baylor. They haven't really been tested since they lost to Stanford back in December. They've you know kind of ran through the Big 12. They haven't been tested in the NCAA tournament. They've won each of their NCAA tournament games by more than 25 points. If Orton comes out and, and lands a gut punch, and all of a sudden they're up six to eight points, they had a bunch of shots, I'm just curious how Baylor responds. Are they able to get back into a game with their offense? Because clearly this is not a team that is, that is comfortable or is at least equipped to play that way. So that'll be interesting. And, and regarding the size of Baylor, another thing from Graves that was interesting, he did compare Kalani Brown, who, by the way, is the, the daughter of P.J. Brown, the former NBA player. I said it for all the for all old NBA fans on Twitter, and Rob Mosley thought I was being a little <laughs> saying old. But Rob, I'm also 30 now, so I feel old as well. But, but what what Graves said about uh, Colony Brown in comparison to Tara McGowan is she's more mobile around the basket and can hit the mid range shot. She's a lot more skilled. So if you wanted a, 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 a if you wanted to feel really good about Friday's game, remember that Tara McGowan girl who was really dominant. Well, the girl that Baylor's got apparently is is a lot more skilled than her and, and much more agile. So. Uh, Going to be a really tough matchup, but again, Oregon has showed now twice this season that they can beat a team like Mississippi State. They beat them twice, who is big, who is physical, that has those big bodies, and they've done it with their perimeter scoring. And I think that, again, like you said earlier, I think that's right on the money. It's going to come down to if Oregon can hit their shots, uh, they're going to have a chance to beat Baylor, almost regardless of how well Baylor plays down low. That's really how I feel. Threes are worth more than twos. Oregon's goes out there, and maybe Aaron Bowley becomes a key part here. She's had a really rough tournament so far, hasn't gotten going. She had 0 for against South Dakota State in the first game in the Sweet 16, and then I think she was 2 for 5 from 3 last game. She can get out there and have one of those 4 or 5 two-point games, which we've seen all season. I think that's a big big key. Uh, Women play April 5th, 4 p.m. Pacific time. Game will be on ESPN. They will play the first of two games, and then the final, if they should advance, the championship game will be played Sunday afternoon, uh, again on ESPN. And then, look, quick turnaround for Sabrina and Esker regardless because uh, they play on the 5th, and April 12th is the WNBA draft. So she's going to – she's projected – Crazy. She's projected to be the number one pick by ESPN. They've had her, I think, on top for all of their projections all year. Uh, and so she's going to have basically about a week – uh, whenever her season ends, to decide, do I want to come back to school for my senior season, or do I want to go pro a year early and enter the WNBA draft? If they play the championship game, she's gonna have five days yeah. from the seventh to twelfth. That's that, I mean, to me, and I understand the urgency. If you want to keep, you want to stay kind of in the spotlight, and, and obviously, um, you know, I think women's basketball sometimes a hard time staying there. So you want to kind of stay there, but I, that's a really, really quick turnaround for someone to make a decision. Obviously, there's been no indication she's kind of chosen to be pretty mums the word on it. I think that makes sense. Yeah. But uh, a potentially a, a humongous decision that she has coming up here in about a little over a week now because if she does come back, she has a chance, and Kelly Graves talked about this, to become possibly the greatest college basketball player of all time statistically in terms of the stats she could put up. Cause I think men and women. And, and so there's a lot of line for her there, but she could also go out and she's now all of a sudden maybe the face of a WNBA franchise and and obviously she's someone who's extremely competitive, and maybe she feels like if they go out and maybe they win the national championship or they play for a national championship, maybe she goes, I want another challenge. Let's see what the next level has for me. But certainly going to be something that we will be closely following, certainly something that we, I'm sure fans are going to be closely following, a lot of people nationally. What does she end up with? The men, we know what, what 
things have happened here. They rattled off 10 straight wins, uh, had two games in the NCAA tournament that uh, in the first and second round that were, quite honestly, just blowouts. I I don't know if I was necessarily expecting um, a blowout win for Oregon in the first round against five-seed Wisconsin. I was expecting them to win, um, but I was not expecting them to walk away with a 72-54 destruction uh, and absolute shutdown of All-American Ethan Happ. And then in the second round, this one did not surprise me. They won against 13-seed UC Irvine, 73-54. Uh, quite honestly, I was I was shocked that Irvine even had the lead in the second half. I feel like a game that Oregon, with if, with the exception of about a weird eight minute stretch, yeah. they could have won by thirty five. Yes, they they were by far the better team. And then they go into the Sweet Sixteen in the Louisville region in the South, play one seed Virginia, and they lost fifty three forty nine. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I don't believe in moral victories, but that was a game that proved Oregon's ten game win streak and inclusion in the NCAA tournament was legit, yeah. was confirmed because. There was a point with about six minutes to go in that game. They had the lead, and they had the ball, and you could argue they were in position to win that game uh, against a, a team that's now made the Final Four. Uh, so Oregon, Oregon's season, I think if you told me at the beginning of the year, hey, they're going to find a way, they're going to go, they're going to win 25 games, they're going to make the Sweet 16, you know, they're going to have this type of success. They're going to win the conference tournament. They're not. They'll finish in the top four of the, of the Pac-12 regular season tournament. You know, I could see that. Yeah, I, I would 100% believe that that could be an outcome that would happen. Uh, it's just the path that they took to get from preseason champion to Sweet 16 yeah. was one of the most crazy paths we've, we've seen in Oregon basketball I, I, history. I, I think it's probably the craziest path. I mean, it has to be the craziest path. We, we're familiar with all the other runs yeah. they made to, the, to this level of the tournament. And I think almost it got, it got overlooked nationally, and, and we won't get into the details. There's a kind of a weird pseudo-scandal that popped up right while Oregon was making a run that probably distra- distracted a lot of people from what I think was really a, an awesome feel-good story of a team that was lost its star player in November, was down in the dumps, basically had played 500 basketball for about two and a half months, and then suddenly figured it out, light ball moment, and they made this incredible run. I agree. I think that's a great point you make, that the Virginia game, even though it's a loss, look, Virginia lost three games all season, I think, right? This is a team that has beaten basically you know, anybody that's been put in their path, and for Oregon to go out there and to be a couple possessions away, look, Lewis King had two, I think a three and a, and a, like a mid-range shot or a floater in the lane. Both kind of rolled in and out. If either of those shots go in, Oregon might win that yeah. game. I mean, it was a game that really came down to a couple possessions. You know, it was a four-point game, but the way Virginia plays, it's like if, if, if the game's tied with four to go, it's just you have to win one more possession yeah. because they play so incredibly slow. So Oregon was was basically a shot here, a shot there from probably winning that game, and that's a crazy place to, for them to be at given where they were in February, where <laughs> how low the season was. So an incredible run. I think a run that hopefully Oregon fans are able to kind of appreciate and, and take forward. And I know Altman was asked after the game, but you know he obviously is not unafraid to bring up bring up past teams and their accomplishments. He's referenced Dylan Brooks and Jordan Bell's team, and he referenced that old Sweet 16, you know, that was similar in terms of run that this one had. But I expect this year's team and the run they had to be something that he'll talk about for a while because for a team to go, like we said, from where they were to where they ended up was was nothing short of almost remarkable. And I think. Probably Altman's best job, and I think he deserves you know a lot of attention and kind of admiration for what he was able to do and what this team was able to do 
after the depths of, that they reached kind of midway through that season. Uh, Bo Bowl has now declared for the draft. He signed with an agent. So he his career at Oregon was done. This was no surprise. Right. Uh, everyone was kind of expecting this. He played nine games for Oregon. He'll be a lottery pick, late first-round draft pick, uh, depending on kind of what his medicals show and just his, his workouts in the combine. Uh, now we're waiting on what other guys are going to do. Lewis King uh, entered the season as a late second-round draft pick. Uh, and as the season came to a close, he has now positioned himself as the 36th best player in the top 100, according to ESPN's Draft Express. And they're, in my opinion, they are the best of the best in terms of scouting, projecting, and reporting on NBA Draft news. They have him as the 36th best player overall in the top 100. Uh, they don't have a, an updated mock draft. Uh, their most recent one is about three weeks old, and that one had, I believe, King somewhere in the in the 40s in the second round. Um, so he's going to have a tough decision to make. Do you roll off of a run in, in March where you averaged almost 18 points per game, uh, you made some huge three-pointers, your stock is pretty high, or do you come back to school and get healthy? He's, you know, he's played on an, a, a bum ankle for the last month, uh, he's had the knee injury that he had to overcome that held him out the first seven games of the season. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, he had some kind of a finger issue that's lingered since, I want to say, February. That's Yeah, was it the Arizona State game? It was one of those games that he put yeah, his finger up. Yeah, where he's, he's had you know a finger injury that's limited his, you know, it's impacted him as well. So, you know, I, I think he could go in either direction, and I think it would make sense for either one. Um, you could argue going pro now makes a lot of sense. Uh, you, you could argue coming back to school makes a lot of sense. And where he decides, uh, I, what well, he decides, I think him going pro, I think Oregon will have the pieces to withstand that. Uh, they'll have to change the way they play a little bit. Uh, but they've got the number one ranked junior college transfer, Chris Duarte, coming in kind of as a safety valve if King goes pro. Uh, they'll play the similar roles. And if he does come back, they're just, only makes Oregon considerably better. Um, now we're waiting on other guys like Kenny Wooten. Does he go pro after having an incredible run through March as well? He dominated against uh, Washington in the Pac-12 championship game. He dominated Ethan Happ in All-American, one of, the, one of the players that everyone calls one of the best players in the country. Yep. Uh, he was astronomically impressive <laughs> against UC Irvine, oh, seven block shots. Uh, and then against Virginia, he had a couple plays, but he was here or there. Um, but his stock has certainly soared. Um, Peyton Pritchard, you know, what does he do? Uh, you know, Oregon's now in a wait and see kind of mode going into the offseason. Yeah, that's that's a spot that they're used to being, frankly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, last year they were in a spot with Troy Brown. He went pro the year before that, and obviously they had three underclassmen decide to go pro in, in, in Val Brooks and, and Dorsey. And, the impacts of these players going pro, I don't think, can be overlooked. If any of those guys had returned for any of those seasons, the years probably look quite a bit different. I think imagine if Troy Brown was on this year's team. Technically, Tyler Dorsey, I think, could could still be on this yeah. year's team, which is a weird thing to think about. But certainly, it'll be something interesting to follow. And, and I think if hypothetically they bring everybody back besides Bull, who's obviously now signed with an agent, he won't be coming back. I think you would see this team ranked somewhere close to the top 10, top 12 going into next season because they would have a lot of pieces coming back with a bunch of tournament experience, all of that late season momentum. It's kind of like what we talked about with the Oregon football team with 
the Red Box Bowl, yeah. getting some momentum going into the offseason, even though it was a really ugly win. At least you go into the offseason with a victory. People saw you win a game you know, last time out. That's a positive. I think people seeing Oregon run off 10 in a row, that'll carry some weight in terms of kind of the national perception. I think this could be, if, if King, if Wooten, if everybody comes back, it could be an extremely talented team next year. I think King has a huge ceiling and can take another step. I think Wooten, obviously, with the way he started playing at the end of the season, and again, we didn't see that for a lot of the season. That was part of the problem they had. Obviously, he had the jaw injury, wore the mask for a while. He wasn't playing at a very high level during that stretch, but when the season really came, you know, time to come to the crux at the end there, he stepped up in a major way. I think he could be someone that takes a big step. This could be a very, very talented team next year. If everybody comes back, and I think even if King and let's say King and Wooten both go, still think you're looking at a team that could easily contend again for the Pac-12 and contend for an NCAA tournament berth, but probably not a team you're looking at as a team that's going to make much of a run in March. Going into the season, yeah, um, I, I, I agree. I think if everyone comes back outside of Bull, this is a top ten team yeah. because you'll have four starters back from a Sweet 16 opponent. You'll have two key guys off the bench. And then you're adding a top 12 recruiting class in the country again that could potentially climb as high as four or five in the country if if a, if a Cole Anthony signs with Oregon, who's the number three player in the country. Yeah. Um, you know, there there's talent coming in again, and if everyone but Bull comes back, they will be loaded. They will have the best rim protector in the Pac-12. They'll have arguably one of the top three wing players in Lewis King uh, in the Pac-12, and then. You could argue they have the best point guard yeah. coming back in Peyton Pritchard. And a guy, now that Jalen Noel has gone pro uh, if at Washington, I think if, if Pritchard comes back, regardless of who else comes back around him, he's going to be one of those three or four or five guys in the league that you're going to say that's a player of the year candidate. They have that in Peyton Pritchard. They have a defensive player of the year candidate in Kenny Wooten. King could also factor himself into that player of the year discussion if he were to come back to school as well so the talent is there to make another really deep run and they they will garnish uh top 10 discussion final four discussion with that group now if king goes and everyone else comes back you know i think they probably drop a tier into kind of the the wild card final four team uh the top 20 preseason team um, because look, they still have Wooten, they still have Pritchard, uh, they'll have Chris Duarte who's coming into the program, Francis Coral, Victor Bailey, Miles Norris, Will Richardson. Um, you know, they've got pieces there. But like I said, if, if King goes and let's just say they add a grad transfer and they add a Cole Anthony to the mix, you know, I could justify, yeah, they go back to being a top 10 team. Just because they'll have Pritchard, who's a player of the year candidate. Wooten's a defensive player of the year candidate. They had a top three player in the country in Cole Anthony. Uh, and then they have a huge core back off the bench. So you know, they're in a position, I think, the middle of the year, you were kind of like, the program has taken a step back. Mm-hmm. And they need to figure out how to get back. They have realigned themselves back on course. And they are now back to that position where no matter who leaves, unless it's just a mass exodus, they will be one of the top 25 teams in the country next season. Let's remove Cole Anthony from the equation, but let's maybe focus on not even a name, but what kind of a player do you think Oregon could use to add to this roster? They need a shooter. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. They need a guy, in my opinion, that that can create for himself or for others, um, kind of like a Pritchard and and a Will Richardson, 
Um, and then they need a guy, more importantly, a guy that can shoot. Yeah. Um, to me, I don't even really worry about his defense because you can hide that in their 2-3 matchup zone defense. But yeah. you need a guy that can you know, come off pick and rolls, come off down screens, um, you know, swing the ball and, and spot up and shoot and knock down threes to stretch the defense. You add another shooter to this mix, um, and I, I think you can have a group that can go pretty far in the tournament. Um, I, I think after finding a, another score, uh, you need another kind of defensive rebounding presence. Um, they, they're going after a new guy. We posted him up on um, Whispers in the Woods. He's a, he's a power forward. Uh, he's, he recently was committed to a, a power five school, and he's, at, he's gotten out of his release because um, of a coaching change. But, you know, they want – I think they need to find another guy that's – Kind of in the mold of a Wooten, a Norris, and a Coro um, that can defend the rim, block shots, and rebound. You know, off- offensively, you'd you'd love it if, if that guy could contribute scoring wise too. Um, but you can I don't think Dana Alman can never have enough big guys that can kind of defend the paint, block shots at the rim, and rebound the basketball. Yeah, yeah well, and I think if, if Wooten and King leave the, those two, the shooting and the and the Rim protection become really crucial because King's probably their best returning three-point shooter. Based on percentage, I think Pritchard maybe has a higher ceiling, but King, especially in the NCAA tournament, shot the ball at a very high level, and Wooten, obviously, that speaks for itself as an elite, elite rim protector. I think there's also, Duck fans need to also be prepared. You know, it, it's happened a ton. It started with Dylan Brooks reclassifying, yeah. uh, and then, I can't, has there been another guy before Okoro? Was there another guy in there? I'm trying to think through. They've been players for yeah, some. Yeah, they've been players for some. I'm trying to think if anybody actually reclassified any of the I don't, I don't, big games. I'll pull up. I don't believe so, but it started with Dylan Brooks, and then Francis Okoro reclassified this year um, to, to join Oregon early. So Oregon's certainly been involved almost every single season with a reclassification guy, um, and I, I think that's going to be the case again this offseason. And it's going to center around five-star center Enfale Dante. He's the number 11 player in the country in 2020. Uh, Sunrise Christian Academy in Kansas, in Wichita, um, a school that Oregon's recruited for years since Dana Altman's been there, uh, been at Oregon. Uh, and the, the Ducks are one of his top three or four schools. And if he does decide to, to go from the 2020 class to the 2019 class, Oregon's going to be a player. They've had him on campus already for an unofficial visit. Uh, and, and, and Fale Dante's six foot 11. He's 230 pounds. He can shoot three-pointers. He's not like Bull. He's more like Chris Boucher. He doesn't have the handles that, that Bull had, but he can block shots. He can rebound, and if he's open on the three-point line, he can hit the, the spot-up uh, jumper as well from there. So that will be another name uh, to watch for if, if you're looking at reclassification. Strangely, this felt like maybe a team that would look really familiar next season. If a couple things go a couple different ways, this could look again kind of like a little bit more of a new-look team, even though obviously there will be some core pieces back. Pritchard being back would be obviously a humongous, humongous boon and, and a big part of kind of the future of, of next year's team. Uh, that's going to do it for us here on the Duck Territory Podcast. Make sure to go to duckterritory.com, read all our work there. Uh, we have a $1 free, uh, trial for the month that is running right now. $1. That's all it costs. Oh to try DuckTerritory.com for a month. Uh, now is the perfect time to do it because of recruiting for Oregon basketball, recruiting for Oregon football. Spring game will be this month. Now is the perfect time to try out uh, the $1 uh, 
trial period for for one month's worth of VIP coverage at DuckTerritory.com. So for Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Brame, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.